from the campus of Stanford University. This is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford University. I'm here with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, Denise. I don't know if people know this, but you're like one of the world's experts on stress. Um, and, and and from from your personal experience, or from, yes, I'm just a very stressed out person, <laughs> and I just study myself. No, no, I do a lot with with stressed out kids. I will tell you a funny story though, which is 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 interesting because my mom, as I was growing up, was extremely stressed about how she was raising us. In, in one point, my mom actually was a parent educator growing up, which is really interesting that I kind of followed her footsteps in a little bit of a way. But there was a few things that my mom could not handle, and one of which was watching us on playground equipment, watching us go down <laughs> go down slides, doing scary things. In her mind, she she would have loved to wrap us in bubble wrap and, you know, never have us do anything scary. And, of course, you know, one of her granddaughters jumps off the equivalent of a three-story building, you know, as a diver, right? My, my daughter's oh, a diver. Oh, my mom, my mom cannot watch my daughter dive. We, she just – she freaks out. She wanted to hire someone to teach us how to go down slides. So, so stress tor- for on others' behalf. <laughs> she was stressing out about – um, us getting hurt. She was very, very worried about us getting hurt. So why why didn't this get communicated? So, so here's here's a study, and uh, our guest can point out that I've got this study wrong. But there's a phenomenon called social referencing, and so you know a, a kid falls down, a young, very young, an infant falls down, and if the parents laugh, the kid sort of interprets this as funny. And if the parents look alarmed, the kid sort of gets stressed out about this and interprets this as a very bad thing. So I would have thought that you'd be very stressed, but maybe you were never allowed to do anything, so you never learned to respond. So to the- I have heard about that study, right? So you know as a parent, like let's say your kid takes a fall, and it looks pretty gruesome, and they're kind of banged up, and maybe their elbow is bleeding. If you make a big deal out of it, and all of us have been on the playground when this has happened, where they, they're like, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> right? And like rushing over and da-da-da. It, the kid actually starts to cry. They weren't going to cry before. They were going to kind of brush it off, like you said, right? So I do think how you handle that is really important. Um, the flip side is you also hear people who are trying to convince themselves. So you hear this when a kid falls off, like, the playground. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. Right? And it's like, wait, who are you trying to convince, the kid or yourself? So You are so channeling the psychological <laughs> stage that's really coming through. It's, it, it, it's true. So that social referencing, I do think it does make a difference, and I think my mom does definitely did not uh, have that quite quite down. Right, but but don't don't you like skydive without no, without so, a shoot? So I will tell you I am a chicken. So I think it did oh, it, did, it, 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 did. it, it got I, and I knew not to do that with my own kids and that's why I have this, you know, some of actually all of them are braver than I am. No, when I ski, I ski in a in a constant snowplow. I don't do roller coasters. Um, yeah, I'm pretty cautious. So, so your mom succeeded. She won. She, she did the social she referencing thing. She I won. think might be true. She won. I know. So we are incredibly lucky 
to have Yelena Obradovich here. She is an associate professor in the Stanford Graduate School of Education. She studies the processes that contribute to resilience in kids and how kids are affected by adversity. Um, and she's going to talk to us about how a child's environment can affect his or her learning because um, this is what she studies in her lab. So I'm going to start with a, a, a bad analogy. It might, it might even be offensive. But I really want to talk about my dog, Kyla Moosh. Okay. I don't so, think it's offensive so far. No, but the analogy between a dog and a child, maybe. Okay. So, so okay. forgive me for this. But I do, I do think Kyla Moosh is very cute. This is a half Malmute, half Labrador retriever. So very long legs, very cute. Everybody likes it. Everybody goes up to try and pet it. And this dog uh, is frightened. It backs away, puts its tail between its legs. Uh, it's very nonsocial. And every single person looks at me and says, Oh, it's a rescue. They know. So I don't, how do they, what, what must happen in these rescue places that cause this dog to be so anxious around people? So now let me bring it back to humans, uh, although I am pleased I got to talk about Kyla Moosh. Who is, uh, can I just say, very, very cute because I saw pictures. Very, very no, cute I'm, dog. I'm, I'm happy to text people photos of her. Okay. Please, please send emails to Denise Pope asking <laughs> for uh, so is, are there things that uh, happen to children that, that will make them sort of more prone to stress? Are there like developmental periods or? Great, great question. First, thank you both for having me here. I'm excited to join this conversation. Um, can I back up a little bit before Please talking do. about Please the? Do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, as Denise pointed out, um, my interest uh, is in how children cope and adapt to very uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. And um, today, I'm going to talk about the individual, while also wanting to acknowledge that you know there are structural stressors, changes that we also need to address. But we're looking a lot within a context of how children and parents interact, right? And so I think there's definitely sensitive periods, early experiences kind of uh, lay foundation for later development and it matters more, but th that is not to say that there are no later periods of, you know, kind of increased change and sensitivity to change. In terms of what makes some children uh, more sensitive, we study both biology of children's adaptation, how they biologically react to some of these stressors, and indeed some children are more um, biologically sensitive or susceptible to kind of negative experiences in an environment. And, you know, early experiences may um, shape that sensitivity. You know, some of it is genetic. Some of it is shaped by early experiences. And when you think about it, I'm going to take a very extreme case. I don't know what happened here, Doc. But a child who comes from environment of abuse develops this sensitivity as a protection, right? And so being vigilant, if you may get struck by your father or mother or if you experience uh, an, an abusive uh, relationship, it's really important for you to be sensitive to cues, to have that stress arousal, uh, hyperactive, so you can protect yourself, right? And over a longer period of time, that experience can be really maladaptive to your brain development, to development of your behavior and whatnot. Uh, my lines of research shows that children who are sensitive to experience it biologically, that is not uh, necessarily a vulnerability, but it can be a good thing. So children who are biologically more sensitive to positive 
positive experiences, who kind of like are just more open to taking these experiences, tend to thrive more uh, if they come from nurturing backgrounds. So it's it's not a necessarily a vulnerability, but more likely to be a kind of a, a malleability to environmental stimuli. So through some genetics, uh, some people are some children are much more responsive to their environment, and if the environment is negative, they're going to become vigilant, and and which is kind of stressful. But if the experiences are positive, they're going to develop more affiliation towards the environment and the world around them. They're going to basically benefit more from it, right? And so being reactive in a context of um, uh, kind of adverse experience or risky experience can manifest else in kind of vigilance. Now, that is a biology, and a lot of people think of kind of biology as being very much autonomic, you know, and it just happens. And I think the other line of our research is trying to understand, well, what kids can do about that, right? What, what are their behaviors that can help manage that arousal, manage that stress, ma- manage their uh, attention, behavior, and emotions? This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and today we're speaking with Yelena Obradovich, and she is talking about how some kids are more susceptible to their environment, and particularly if you think about a negative environment, abuse, or poverty, and you study these kids. So how how is it that you, well, first, let's just make, make it clear. Is everybody equally prone to stress? I think you just answered that. So no, right? Yes. But what are we talking about? What, what is the stress? You said vigilance is one of the reactions. How would you define that? There is a probably a stress that you experience on a biological level. So, and stress can be a good stress. It can be a bad stress. So, when when you think of uh, your body and your body reactions to experiences, it could be that it's something very you know giving a public uh, speech can be stressful. Uh, shopping in a mall can be stressful. Talking a, on a radio show. Talking on a radio show. Um, <laughs> having a birthday party. You know, there's so there's a lot of things that you know activate these stressful responses. Right, and they can be both short-lasting and long-lasting. They can be, be positive. They can be very subjective. They can be very objective. Like uh, being hungry is a stressor to everybody, right? And so there is this physiological reactions that you know, if you feel like you're being threatened by somebody, let's say your heart rate will you know start beating faster, your pupils will open, you may start sweating, and so those are some of the kind of natural physiological reactions to it. So some kids may react you know, significantly to uh, similar experiences and some less so. I think what's important to highlight is that when stressors are chronic, so they happen every day for long periods of time, such some of the experiences of disadvantage or socioeconomic poverty, then we have these systems being activated in a uh, kind of prolonged fashion, right? And so that is then a difference in terms of how it affects development. And you study these kids in your lab, and what do you find? For longest period of time, we thought about children being reactive or not reactive, right? And so one of the exciting findings that we recently published is that it's not all in how children react to challenges. And those challenges can be normative. It can be, you know, asked to do some math task, or it can be, you know, talking to a stranger. And it's not just about how they react immediately to that challenge, but how they recover, 
So mm-hmm. what we find is that there is a, also differences in how long children take to recover to their kind of normative state. And we think that it's in that recovery process, in that kind of recovery trajectory, that really uh, where resilient children maybe differ from those um, that are more negatively affected. Oh, I, I so want like my Apple Watch to be able to tell me what is my recovery profile. Yes. From stress. And so what we find is that children who have better uh, emotion regulation skills, so those children who are seen as better regulating their emotions and their behaviors in kind of emotionally laden um, uh, settings, um, children who have a better delay of gratification tends to be faster in recovering from these stressors. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking today with Yelena Obradovich, and we're talking about different kids' resilience and how they react to stress, and those who recover more quickly uh, have certain traits that you found. So what is one way that you measure this? Because Dan was just joking that he wishes his, his Apple Watch could, could say. <laughs> so, some sensor device how? comes back and says, you know, you're still stressed about that encounter with Denise. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, let it go. How do you measure reactivity? We look at two systems in the body. One is kind of the fast acting, which uh, a lot of people kind of refer to as a fight or flight, which is our autonomic nervous system that controls, you know, our heart rate and inputs to our heart. So we basically um, connect little electrodes to children's bodies and we look at their autonomic reactivity, which is very sensitive to changes second by second. And then the other ways that we look at is we look at the, another system that's a little bit more slower system that's expressed through a cortisol hormone, and we often collect saliva. You can also measure it in hair. So that's another way in which we look at how what is the variability in which children's bodies react to these stressors. On a behavioral level, we are very much interested in self-regulation. These are a set of skills that help kids basically control or manage um, their attention, their behavior, their impulses, ignore distractions. And so what we do is we basically give them a standardized set of tasks that probe for these set of skills, and we try to, in objective ways, measure them. And then separately, we ask their parents, their independent observers, uh, people who watch them in the lab, as well as their teachers, to tell us how are these behaviors then manifested in a classroom context, in the home context. So it sounds like self-regulation and all those skills, learning how to delay gratification and not hit your neighbor and, and sit still and listen, right? Those are really important skills in school. Before we get to the tie between self-regulation and academic outcomes, a number of the people that I hang out with and am in loving relationships with say I'm too self-regulated. Okay, what does that mean, Dan? (laughs) Well, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Does it mean I'm repressed or does it mean, no, I have an extremely good self-regulation that I can keep down all the positive emotions and negative emotions and I just sort of keep down all the emotions. So that scares me a little bit, but I bet you were a really good student because you you never hit your neighbor and you never wiggled and you don't have, you know, ADD. No, I was just laser focused all the time. You know? <laughs> but it, it, is, is it possible to be like too self-regulated? 
I think people confound two different constructs often. So one of the aspects of executive functioning is inhibitory control, so being able to inhibit impulsive behaviors um, and to be able to, you know, let's say if your predominant or kind of most likely respond is to speak up, blurt out an answer in a classroom, what is your ability to kind of remember that you have to raise your hand, right? But it can be opposite. If you're shy and inhibited, child, it could be that, you know, your dominant response is just to sit still there and don't talk, don't make eye contact. So in that case, inhibitor control for you would be to inhibit your dominant response to be shy and actually to speak up. And so people sometimes this inhibitor control confuse with behavioral inhibition, which is a different aspect of a children's temperament, which is, you know, being over-controlled, less likely to do risky behavior, wanting to have regulated, you know, uh, lifestyle or or a certain order of things. So th- those are a little bit different. That inhibitory control is really your ability to stop yourself or suppress doing something that it's more dominant and more kind of potent response for you. So, so the true story is I'm extremely loving, but I just inhibit the expression of that. I see. And in terms of schooling, you're one of the people who we are happy to have in the classroom because you're not bouncing off the walls. That's, right. That's very interesting. Um, this is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will be back with more with Yelena Obradovich talking about how a child's environment affects his or her learning and stress and resilience next on SiriusXM Insight 121. We translate the research we know about best practices with school, curriculum, and parenting to teachers, administrators, parents, and youth. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Today we are talking with Yelena Obradovich. She's an associate professor in the Stanford Graduate School of Education, and we're talking about resilience and self-regulation in kids, how they know when to raise their hand instead of blurting out. And there's a term that you've used before called executive function. Can you talk to us about executive function? What does that mean? And why is it important? Executive function are these higher, we call it higher cognitive um, skills that are supported by prefrontal brain, which is really your kind of thinking, your wizard brain. And they basically enable kids to inhibit their impulses, ignore distractions. It's able for them to hold certain information in their mind and kind of manipulate it in a certain way, whether that's a verbal or nonverbal information, follow certain procedures procedures that have multiple steps when you issue instruction to your child, you know, do this and do this and then do that. You know, they can follow through these kind of multi-step procedures and, you know, adjust flexibly to them. The last kind of set of skills is cognitive flexibility, which is really ability to flexibly shift between different rules and different expectations and see things from different perspectives. And so these are very basic set of skills that support so many different competencies, right? And so the the reason why I got excited about these set of skills is because to some extent they're universal. So we have research in the United States, we have research in rural Pakistan, and these set of skills really enable children to achieve goals. 
and to organize their behavior to achieve goals. And so you can think of them as universal in that your culture, your society can decide what the goal is important for you, right? And the kids still need that set of skills, these set of tools, these kind of basic tools to get to that goal. And so I think that is the exciting part. So the difference between executive function and IQ is that executive function is really defined as a set of processes, whereas IQ was more like uh, the outcome of the output that you might have on some task. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? I, th- I think that's a fair way to describe okay. it. Yep. It's a, it's a set of processes. Uh, obviously, there's some overlap, and a lot of it is in how you measure it, right? Yeah. And so culture, educational experiences can impact um, the IQ test a lot more than tests of executive function have been designed to kind of minimize these cultural, educational experiences and get to the root of these basic tools that... And when you're talking about goals, you mean like do well in school, be able to get dressed yourself. We're talking about basic goals here that you need executive functioning so, so you to need do. A, yes. I mean, you can decide what, you know, that's why they're what I would say a little bit universal and not so bound by culture. So you can have a goal to do well at school, right? And that will require behaving in a certain way in the classroom that's very adaptive and self-regulated. That is being able to look at the math problem and not get stuck in solving it only one way, but can um, inhibit kind of maybe failed strategies and can see the problem from different alternate perspectives, be flexible about that. It could be figuring out how to behave on a playground, right? As um, kids get into elaborate play, know when it's your time to step in and it's your role. What is the rules that, you know, your peers have set? How do you remember who has done what? When is your, you know, turn to get into the game? That is seriously hard stuff. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking with Yelena Obradovich about... All the rules and regulations and learning how to be a kid on the playground, you need some serious processing going on in your brain. Executive function helps you do that, helps you look ahead, helps you learn these things and and succeed. I I once heard that um, it is way harder to be a girl at a slumber party in middle school than to take a calculus test. Like literally, if you think of all the processes you have to do to keep in mind, to be social and know who's talking to who and know how to react and know not what to do and brush your teeth and, you know, all this stuff and be cool, you're holding on to so much more information than you would if you were taking a calculus test. Or if you're a guy and you just sleep. And you're, right. just, or if you're Dan. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So stress interferes with executive function at, at the moment it's occurring. And then maybe there's long-lasting effects of stress on executive yeah, so, function. So like I said, that, that prefrontal part of the brain that support these set of skills develops um, the longest. It takes the longest time to develop. It has a very um, protracted kind of developmental trajectory. And so what happens to children who are exposed to um, disadvantaged backgrounds that involve a lot of chronic stress that we talked about a little earlier is you're flooding that part of the brain with stress hormones, which undermines development and then undermines these set of skills over a long time. Now, in the context of like acute, like somebody being stressed out about, you know, your finances or your job security or your um, status in a hierarchy among your peers, you know, or whether you're wearing something you wore yesterday or whatnot, in the moment, being stressed can also undermine your ability to use these set of skills. 
So, so what's your advice then for a parent or a teacher? How can they tell who needs more, who needs less, who's stressed out? What would you tell those folks to do? Yeah. What happens with self-regulation in the kind of real world is we often want kids to behave a certain way in the context of them acting out, right? And in the context of them showing a negative emotion, that oppositionality or anger or whatnot. And a lot of um, roots of this self-regulation really happens in infancy. Uh, when parents really uh, act as important core regulators and kind of set the stage for later children being able to regulate their own emotions. And what is maybe obvious to some educators and some parents is that a lot of that happens through playing and happens very early on. So when you think about infants who are just playing peekaboo or little um, rhyming and singing sequences, what they're doing in that moment is really learning a lot about inhibiting, taking turns, regulating this positive, exuberant emotions. And so learning self-regulation in that context, in the context of positive emotions, is uh, so much more effective than learning in the context of negative emotions. So we emphasize that in early childhood, play has this huge significance to promote. So everything from what I said, the singing and dancing, learning the steps to a certain dancing moves, or even playing a pretend play. You have to, like you mentioned, during the slumber party. You have to keep in mind, like, what is your role? How do you not get out of the character? What if somebody immediately came up with a new twist to the play? You know, how do you adapt flexibly to that? How do you, you know, know when not to speak out of the character, right? So there's a lot of things that happen um, in a context of play as kids get older, playing with them board games and engaging in sports activity or, you know, learning a foreign language. There's a lot of things that children can do to learn this self-regulation in kind of a positive way. So this is really an interesting point because I would have thought the way to teach my child to handle stress through executive control is to get them in a situation where it's really tough and then sort of say, buck up, be, be stronger, kid. But it turns out the better situation is when actually they're stressed, but it's in a playful situation. It's, and, and then I can play these games with them to help them. So that that's kind of a surprise. Well, and even when it sounds like they're not stressed yet, you're 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 playing itsy bitsy spider and peekaboo as a way to really teach them how to use these skills later on. Right. But when you think about these games, they're, you ramp up arousal, right? You ramp up excitement about it, right? And then you have to st- like ramp it down, like basically have to calm down. So you're, you're teaching them how to take turns, how to learn certain t- procedures, but in a context of a lot of joy and excitement, right? So that's one way. Can I yeah. ask on this? We're running out of time. Yeah. Is there direct evidence that teaching kids to self-regulate under happy conditions transfers to when they're in the difficult situation? Yeah, so we have, there's a lot of curriculums that look at, you know, play-based curriculums that have shown to promote these set of skills. We also had to kind of maybe pivot a little bit from the positive experiences. There's a lot of curriculums and and, and kind of games-based programs that have promoted. One of the things that we were looking at recently, you know, is this idea of, you know, buckle up, right, that you brought up. There is a notion in the context of resilience that a little bit 
bit of, you know, negative experiences can prepare you to handle more negative experiences later on. Like, and, and, and people have referenced this as inoculation, com- kind of like being vaccinated yeah, against yeah, yeah. a future stressor yeah. or a stealing effect. And so we looked at our community sample of children. So these are not children who are experiencing high levels of adversity. And we wanted to look at what is the relationship between their parents reporting some stressors and some challenges in their lives and children's executive functioning as well as emotion regulation behaviors. And we find that actually experiencing small amounts of this limited uh, parental challenges, uh, um, those children had the highest level of self-regulation. So that is to say, we don't have to wrap our kids in the bubble wrap, right? Like as you were mentioning, your mom wanted to do to you. The the little bit of uh, letting them practice these set of skills through some limited exposure to challenges do help them out in the long term um, develop these set of skills. And I think knowing when those challenges are just right challenges and you know that they're going to be okay, like going down the slide, is really hard to distinguish from knowing when it's so hard and they're super scared to take the stage in a play and when to force them and when to not. So lots for parents to think about. And we will certainly think through, I know, Dan, you will, how you teach these positive skills for your kids so that they can then apply executive function through, through the positive, not through the buck up. Yeah, model. well, for my, my cute Kyla Moosh, very cute dog, I've gotten a pinch collar. Okay, but we're not going to do that for our children. Okay. I think that's a really important way to end. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121. campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.